What's up, guys? Welcome back to episode six of Crim De La Crime podcast. On the list this week is the state of Colorado. According to worldpopulationreview.com, the state of Colorado has 292 unsolved disappearances. It's important to keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So you guys already know the drill. Grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Colorado true crime. You like that you sick son of a bitch? The first case today is actually a little different than what I normally do because this case does trigger warning in advance involve a brutal murder. But because the disappearance is also tied to this murder, it is not possible for me to share one without the other. And it'll make more sense as I go through the case. But This story is about Abby Jo Blagg. And Abby Blagg was born on March 21st, 1995 in San Diego, California. Her parents were Jennifer and Michael Blagg. The couple met in the early 1990s while Michael was serving in the Navy and Jennifer was in college. They ended up getting married in 1993. Michael and Jennifer were said to be born-again Christians who led prayer meetings. They started prayer ministries in local churches and were members of the First Baptist Church in Simpsonville, South Carolina. But Michael taught Sunday school at this church, and Jennifer worked in this church's prayer ministry. The family later moved to Grand Junction, Colorado in the year 2000. Their home was in a quiet cul-de-sac in the 2200 block of Pine Terrace Court. Michael worked as operations director for the Dixon Division of Amatech Inc., which is a local manufacturing plant. At this time, Jennifer was a stay-at-home mom. Their daughter, Abby, attended school at Bookcliff Christian School, and to those who knew them, they appeared to be a happy, normal family. They doted on Abby and the leader at their church called them a poster child sort of family. Anytime cases start like this, I already know it's about to be some bullshit. Before I go any further, the events leading up to Abby and Jennifer's disappearances are based on information provided to the police by Michael. It's important for you guys to know that he is currently serving a life sentence for Jennifer's murder. Abby and Jennifer were last seen at the family home between 3 p.m. and 3.30 p.m. on November 12, 2001. According to Michael, Abby went to sleep around 7 p.m. and an hour later, Jennifer received a phone call from a neighbor about possibly meeting for lunch the following day. Michael and Jennifer went to bed around 10 p.m., According to Michael, nothing strange occurred overnight. Michael claims he left for work early the following morning, around 6 a.m. He said at this time both Jennifer and Abby were still asleep. 
Michael said it was routine for him to call home periodically throughout the day and speak to Jennifer, but he said on this day all of his phone calls went unanswered. He said that even though his concern grew a little bit throughout the day, he didn't feel like anything was wrong. Michael returned home around 4 p.m., where he said he found signs of a struggle in their home. The back door was open, which was unusual, and, quote, Abby didn't come running for him like she normally did, end quote. In the master bedroom, Jennifer's purse and its contents were spilled onto the dresser and her jewelry box was empty. The bed was unmade and stained with blood on Jennifer's side. At 4.20 p.m., Michael called the Mesa County Sheriff's Office and soon after, the residence was sealed off as a potential crime scene. Investigators found that an unknown individual called Abby's school and told administrators that she would be absent from class on November 13, 2001. Friends and relatives in Arizona, California, Texas, and South Carolina were questioned regarding Abby and Jennifer's whereabouts. Officials also read through Jennifer's journals, hoping that they would provide some sort of clue. They were reportedly filled with biblical references and also mentioned her failing health and a severe family crisis. In her purse was an email from Michael, which proved even more that they had marital problems. It read, I would love to take some time to talk through the problems we are having. Do not give the devil a foothold. So, after finding all of this stuff investigators decided to place Michael under surveillance. Their surveillance paid off in January of 2000 when a camera recorded Michael stealing a paper shredder and a table together worth over $500 from his employer. When questioned about the incident and Jennifer and Abby's disappearances, he attempted suicide by cutting his wrists. He was taken to the hospital in serious condition and released a week later. Even though he'd written a note denying any knowledge as to what happened to Abby and Jennifer, the police publicly identified him as a possible suspect in their disappearances. Because of this, Michael then hired an attorney. The case drew national attention. To help prompt someone with information to come forward, the family put up a $3,000 reward. Not long after Jennifer and Abby went missing, an employee from Colorado Legal Services in Grand Junction came forward to say that they recognized them. They shared that Jennifer had visited the office several days before she disappeared, stating that she wanted out of her abusive marriage. She had been unable to immediately see an attorney and became upset and left shortly after. In December of 2001, Michael moved out of the family home and into his mother's house in Georgia, stating that it was too difficult to remain there without his wife and daughter. Around that time, he informed the authorities that a portion of Jennifer's jewelry had been stolen from the residence on the day of her and Abby's disappearances. Even though he's reporting this missing all this time later, right? 
He conveniently told police that he hadn't noticed the jewelry was missing until now. He even stated that Jennifer and Abby's disappearances might be related to a series of burglaries that had occurred in Grand Junction in late 2001. According to investigators, only the jewelry pieces that had been insured were missing. In late March of 2002, investigators announced their belief that Abby and Jennifer were victims of foul play. They also speculated that the family's maroon and gold 2000 Ford Windstar was used to transport their bodies from the family home. The vehicle was parked inside the garage when they were both reported missing. An anonymous female contacted the Mesa County Sheriff's Office several times. She claimed she had seen the family's minivan near Park Ridge, Colorado on November 13, 2001. Police put out a public call for her to contact them again with additional details, but I didn't find any follow-up on this and it's unknown if she ever called them back. Authorities announced a 45-mile search near the Blagg's home in April of 2002. It was limited to those areas accessible by a two-wheel drive, low-clearance vehicle similar to their Windstar. The search included search dogs, citizen volunteers, and officers on horseback, foot, and in the air. Despite searching for 12 days straight, they were unable to find any evidence related to the case. Officials continued to search for clues around Grand Junction into the summer of 2002. There were also some documents that were released in June of 2002, and they revealed the owner of a local escort service had come forward and told the investigators that Michael was a regular visitor at her business, and he often received massages by topless women. This coincided with the discovery of pornographic images on his home computer. When approached about this, he claimed to be addicted to porn. He also stated that he and Jennifer had been having problems in late 2001 and the pornography was a way of educating themselves. I just want to stop and make a little note here that I think he's full of shit because from everything that I've read and learned about Jennifer, it seems very unlikely to me that she was participating in this with him. I don't believe it at all. One of Michael's co-workers came forward and told authorities that Michael had been acting strange on November 13th, 2001. This person stated that he had seen Michael pushing a pallet jack with two large cardboard boxes on top of it. And this is, keep in mind, this is at his work, okay? He later discarded these boxes on the loading dock near the trash compactor. He denied help with the boxes when it was offered, which the coworker thought was odd. After receiving this information, investigators began a grid search of the Mesa County landfill and zeroed in on the area that they believed the trash from Amatech Inc. had been dumped. On June 4, 2002, human remains were discovered, and two days later, on June 6, 
they were positively identified as Jennifer Blagg. The autopsy said that she had been killed at close range by a gunshot to her left eye and the 9mm bullet was still lodged in her skull. It appeared that she had been murdered in her sleep because her dental retainer that she only wore at night was with her remains. There was no evidence that Abby's body was at the scene and investigators are uncertain if her remains will be located. Michael was obviously quickly arrested and charged with first-degree murder because investigators believed that Jennifer's murder was premeditated. Along with the large amount of Jennifer's blood found on the couple's mattress, trace amounts were discovered on the Windstar steering wheel, gas pedal, and on the inside passenger door. Michael was not charged in relation to Abby's disappearance because her blood was not found in the home. Many people theorize, though, that Abby was collateral damage in the attack on Jennifer. When Michael was returned to Colorado to face the charges against him, it was revealed that he had nearly confessed to the crime during questioning in February of 2002. This was also the same day that he had tried to commit suicide. It was reported that he had started crying during the session and had asked what the penalties for murder were. He then requested to speak to his attorney and left police headquarters. Michael was tried for Jennifer's murder in March of 2004. Prosecutors claimed that he had killed her because she wanted a divorce and they produced witnesses to speak to the couple's deteriorating marriage. The defense argued that an intruder had killed Jennifer because they claimed there was no evidence directly tying Michael to the crime. After 12 hours of deliberation, the jury convicted Michael and sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He attempted to appeal the conviction in 2008, but thankfully, his appeal was denied. Before I go further, I just want to give snaps to the coworker that came forward and said that he noticed something weird because without this person and they weren't named, but without this person coming forward, they probably would have never found Jennifer's body. Michael would have never been convicted of at least Jennifer's murder, even though Abby hasn't been found. And this is why it's so important when you notice something that you think is strange or just not normal, say something because you never really know. So Michael is sentenced to prison for Jennifer's murder. And 10 years later, in 2014, it was discovered that one of the jurors had lied about their domestic violence history when filling out the jury questionnaire. Please don't do this. Because of this, Michael's conviction was overturned and a new trial was ordered. This time, the trial took place in Jefferson County four years later because the trial was already so well known in Grand Junction. At the retrial, the defense allowed convicted felon Thomas Fury to take the stand. Thomas testified that he had seen Abby with a blonde woman at a Texaco gas station in Utah on the evening of November 16, 2001. He had been on a, quote, 
cross-country joyride of the West in a stolen vehicle at the time. When he was arrested the next day and brought to the Mesa County Sheriff's Office, he saw the missing persons flyer with Jennifer and Abby's images on it. He immediately recognized Abby as the little girl he had seen the night before. The prosecution pointed out that Thomas's statements regarding the incident were inconsistent and the woman he was with that evening told the jury that he was lying about what he had seen that night. The prosecution presented the same argument it had used during the first trial with investigators testifying that evidence found in the Blagg home contradicted Michael's version of events. This time, after only 17 hours of deliberation, he was found guilty of first-degree murder, abuse of a corpse, and two counts of theft. He was once again sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Michael is currently incarcerated at the Colorado Territorial Correctional Facility in Canyon City, Fremont County. Jennifer's mother, Marilyn, made a statement in court saying, For my girls, I will see them. Jennifer and Abby were as precious as any parent recognizes their kids are. My world is never going to be complete until I do. While the investigation into Abby's disappearance remains open, investigators believe she is no longer alive and was buried somewhere other than the site where Jennifer's body was located. Her case remains open as a cold case with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. Abby Blagg went missing from Grand Junction, Mesa County, Colorado on November 12, 2001. She was six years old and what she was wearing is currently unknown. At the time of her disappearance, she was four feet tall and weighed around 44 pounds. She has strawberry blonde hair and blue eyes. She is classified as endangered missing, with foul play suspected. If you have any information regarding the case of Abby Blagg, please contact the Mesa County Sheriff's Office at 970-244-3500. The second case today is another one of those cases that there really isn't a lot of information, but this woman's case is very strange and the details surrounding the abduction are so terrifying that I just really had to share her story. So this is about Angelica Esperanza Sandoval. Angelica Sandoval was born October 19, 1989. She is the oldest of six children, is a mother, and was working as a waitress at the time she disappeared. Angelica was last seen in Alamosa, Colorado at 9.50 p.m. on February 23, 2011. She had just finished doing some laundry at the laundromat and returned to her house in the 700 block of 13th Street in Alamosa, Colorado. She took her phone, her one-year-old daughter, her daughter's car seat, and some of the laundry with her on her first trip inside. 
She then went back outside to get her purse and the rest of the laundry, but she never came back. About 15 minutes go by at this point, and her brother went out to check on her and said that she was gone. The back door of her car was open, the keys were in the door lock, and her purse was either lying on the floorboard of the car or on the ground, but I couldn't find a single source that could confirm which one for sure that it was. Her brother said there was no sign of her anywhere and she has never been seen or heard from again. It was stated that she left behind her cell phone and cigarettes, which is something that she would not have done willingly. Before we move on, I actually looked up where she lived and for someone to abduct her in such a quick time frame, I mean, just stepping right back outside just to grab her purse and the rest of the laundry, I feel like they had to have been waiting for her specifically. There's no way that they just stumbled upon her in that small window as a crime of opportunity. I think that they were sitting there watching and just happened to get lucky that she came outside by herself. And honestly, the whole scene of this, I mean, the keys being left in the door like that, you know, the door being open, it's so scary. I mean, they blitz grabbed her in a second is what it seems like from the scene, which is absolutely terrifying to think about. And what's even more frustrating about this is there really isn't much evidence in Angelica's case other than the obvious signs of her abduction. So, As I was digging a little further, because upon just reading through her case, I was like, okay, it seems like obviously she was abducted, but I ended up finding out, and this is where it gets a little weird. It's really important for you guys to know that Angelica actually disappeared 10 days before she was supposed to testify against a guy named Jose Luis Meraz. So Jose was in prison at this time and he was being charged with breaking into Angelica's home in November of 2010. So when he broke into her house, he put a gun to her head, he tied her up with duct tape and he demanded money. And I did read, I think he stole like $200. That's it. She told police that when he started to show intentions of sexually assaulting her, she begged him not to rape her in front of her little girl. So at that point, it said that he left her house and he had boasted to her that he had gang ties before exiting the house. After this happened and Angelica was interviewed by the police, she identified him by his tattoos and the sound of his voice, and he was charged with menacing, robbery, kidnapping, assault, and cruelty to a child. Jose has been questioned about her disappearance, but of course, he's always denied that he had any involvement. Now, Jose was in jail awaiting trial at the time of Angelica's disappearance. Since she was the main witness, without her testimony, the prosecution had no case against him and the charges were dropped. These charges can be refiled in the future if she ever reappears alive. 
After the home invasion case was dropped, Jose remained in jail on an unrelated assault charge for which he was sentenced to 18 months in prison. It hasn't ever been proven that Jose or the 2010 home invasion incident had anything to do with her disappearance. But, and you guys can let me know what you think, to me, it really seems unlikely that it didn't. Investigators have several persons of interest in her case besides Jose, and many of these individuals are also currently incarcerated. But as I was looking for stuff about her case, I didn't find any articles or anything that named any specific people other than Jose. Foul play is obviously suspected in Angelica's case because of the circumstances of her disappearance. On top of everything, investigators and her family don't believe that she would have just left abruptly and abandoned her daughter. The father of Angelica's child is in prison, so her mom is now taking care of her daughter. Angelica's case remains unsolved to this day. Angelica Sandoval disappeared from Alamosa, Colorado on February 23, 2011 when she was 21 years old. She is Hispanic and was 4 foot 11, weighing around 105 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She has brown hair and brown eyes. She was last seen wearing a turquoise tank top, light-colored jeans, and white high-top shoes. She has several tattoos, including paw prints on her torso, the words Sad Girl on her knuckles, Faith behind her right ear, the name Lariah on her left shoulder, a butterfly on her right shoulder, and tattoos on her neck and wrist. Her lower lip is pierced on the left side and her ears are also pierced. Angelica's case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Angelica Sandoval, please contact the Alamosa Police Department at 719-580-0057. That's all I have for this week's episode, but if any of my listeners have a loved one that disappeared and you would like their story shared in a future episode of this show, please reach out via email crimdelacrimepodcast7 at gmail.com, head over to Instagram and follow me at crimdelacrimepod, and don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off. Mm-hmm.